BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Deadlines are fast approaching to broker deals and send bills to President Biden's desk in this lame duck session. But major pieces of legislation remain on Congress's plate. A bill to fund the government through next fall and avert a shutdown. A massive defense spending bill. A proposal to reform the Electoral Count Act. Meantime, a showdown looms for House speakership. We'll talk about what's happening and what isn't like addressing the debt ceiling in the remaining days of a Democrat-controlled Congress. Join us. I'm Nina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Congress has had until midnight Friday to pass a spending bill to avert a government shutdown. Yesterday, the House passed a stopgap funding bill that would extend that deadline another week to the 23rd, which the Senate needs to pass and President Biden needs to sign by tomorrow. It's just one of several major deadlines lawmakers are trying to meet before a new Congress takes over in January, one where Republicans will control the House. Democrats, the Senate. Joining me now, Katie Edmondson, congressional correspondent for the New York Times. Welcome to Forum, Katie. Hi, Nina. Also, Claudia Grisales is with us, congressional correspondent for NPR. Claudia, thanks for joining us, too. Hey there. Thanks for having me. So, Claudia, with the House passing this short-term spending bill, the one-week continuing resolution, it's now far less likely that we'll get to a government shutdown, right? Right. It seems like at least this temporary funding bill is speeding through Congress, at least they hope, ahead of this deadline at the end of the day on Friday. And this, in the end, uh, is a part of a larger mission to pass a permanent funding bill that will take care of budgets for the government for the coming year. But that is going to be a much tougher uh, hill to climb, if you will, but many are hopeful they'll be able to make it at least before the Christmas holidays. Yeah, part of the momentum to support this one-week extension, there was some Republican opposition. It came from an announcement Tuesday that Democrat and Republican negotiators, that they've agreed on a framework to fund the government through next year. What can you tell us about this framework, Claudia? Claudia? <laughs> 
Right. I cannot tell you much. They basically have just told us there's a deal. We have seen this movie play out before (laughs) on Capitol Hill, and they have finished their work. But it is very tricky because we do not have a lot of the details, for example, a top-line figure in terms of the overall total that the parties can agree to, uh, at least what they're hoping, congressional leaders are hoping, is a majority of both parties um, to push this kind of legislation through, which essentially is um, a combination of about a dozen bills uh, to keep the government's budgets uh, paid off for the plans uh, that they had in place. Uh, for the coming year. And so, it, again, it's going to be a tall order in terms of getting that through. We still don't have text. We don't have a lot of details. Uh, but we have seen them do this rather quickly, especially when they have a holiday approaching. It's a little bit of a, a holiday magic, if you will, that we'll see play out sometimes at the Capitol when they have deadlines like this crashing up against them. Well, though we don't have a framework, we know that there are a lot of things that people would like to attach to this spending bill. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit, Claudia, about emergency spending for Ukraine? Right. The aid for Ukraine, of course, we've been hearing about that for some time now. There have been uh, several efforts to move aid over to assist Ukraine in this war uh, with Russia. And so this is going to be another push. This will be the final push, at least before divided government takes hold next year. So it's very critical for, for many folks um, here and for President Biden's administration to try and get this last bit of aid for Ukraine through in this larger spending bill. Yeah. Katie Edmondson, there's also an effort to reform the Electoral Count Act. Can you tell us the details of that? The bipartisan piece of legislation that lawmakers in both parties really wanted to get across the finish line before going into divided government. And what that bill aims to do essentially is to prevent a another January 6th. It is largely a clarifying bill. And what the legislation does is to clarify that the role of the vice president in counting the electoral votes certified by the states is purely ceremonial. And so the idea here is to knock down any false arguments like those we saw offered by the Trump campaign after 2020 to to knock down the concept that the vice president might be able to reject electors certified by state legislatures. And this act essentially says it codifies that the vice president's rule is only ceremonial. Well, a lot of the momentum behind this one is, of course, trying to prevent another January 6th from happening, as you say, Katie. And Claudia, I know the J6 committee is going to have a big week next week. Can you just tell us what's ahead for them? Right. It is a very busy week indeed. And as we've known about this panel in the past, they have been a little fluid in terms of their plans. So they've they've had some plans switched around here and there. So we'll see what the final Um, plan looks like by next week. But for now, what we're hearing is that Monday afternoon, at least 1 p.m. Eastern time, is when they plan to hold their final hearing to move on criminal referrals and other recommendations. These recommendations can include referrals for discipline for lawyers through their various bar associations, can include House ethics complaints, uh, referrals uh, for, for example, House Republicans who defied their subpoenas. 
Um, and then the biggest one is criminal referrals, and those could involve former President Trump. And as we know, yes. earlier this year, the panel hinted at some of those crimes that they believe that the then president may have committed uh, leading up to and on January 6th in terms of obstructing an official proceeding for Congress. And there's also been questions raised about witness tampering that came up in one of the final hearings that the panel had. So all of this is expected to be revisited on Monday. We also could see a preview to the report. That's one area that's a bit fluid. Committee Chairman Benny Thompson told me and other reporters this morning that we could get a preview of that report on Monday. He even said he went as far as saying perhaps even more of the report could be released to the public. But this goes back to um, kind of these shifting plans. Initially, we were told that report would come out later in the week. So that's what we're waiting on now is, is to see how detailed they will be in terms of their findings. This could be a very lengthy report. At one point, Thompson told me it could be a thousand pages long, but he's he's uh, shifted a little bit from that number. So we'll see what the final final plan looks like. But it will be a busy week indeed. And we could see transcripts from more of the the more than 1000 witnesses that the panel interviewed during the course of their investigation. Yeah. And it bears reminding that, of course, this panel can't charge. These are right. referrals to the Department of Justice. Right. They cannot prosecute crimes. So the closest they can get is issuing these formal letters uh, where they lay out um, their referrals for various crimes. And they could share evidence that the Justice Department does not have that if they do pursue indictments that would make um, more um, considerations in terms of evidence if they do pursue indictments against the former president or his allies. Now, Katie Edmondson, I want to get into the defense bill because, of course, the spending bill isn't the only major bill. The National Defense Authorization Act is further along than the spending bill. $858 billion, I'm seeing. So it reflects a massive increase in defense spending, more than what President Biden wanted. Why was that able to get through? That's right. All told, when you look at this bill, it would constitute an 8% increase uh, from last year's defense budget, and it is a an increase of $45 billion over what President Biden asked for. Wow. Now, this was a bill that was overwhelmingly approved along bipartisan lines in the House, and we expect the vote to be similarly lopsided uh, later today in the Senate. And the reason for that really is that we are seeing a bipartisan consensus driven by the hawks in both the Democratic and Republican Party, that because we have a protracted war in Europe, we don't know when the war in Ukraine is going to end, because lawmakers have fears of an emboldened China and potential repercussions uh, to that effect with respect to Taiwan, we're seeing lawmakers agree to the type of massive increases that Democrats, including President Biden and many progressives, had really hoped to end uh, with unified government. Of course, when House Republicans take the majority next year, we're expected to see more of the same. So this bill essentially is locking in those types of increases that a lot of Democrats really had hoped to steer away from. Yeah. How much are they setting aside for Taiwan security assistance? You know, the language itself is a little fuzzy because it says that it could be up to $10 billion for Taiwan. It creates a separate fund. 
But again, I think you see a lot of lawmakers, both Democrats and particularly Republicans who have been China hawks for a long, long time in Congress, you see them making the argument that after what we've seen in Ukraine, it's imperative to try to start defending Taiwan now before China uh, you know, starts any sort of incursion there. And are they concerned at all about U.S. weaponry, meaning that we need to keep up with demand that the Russia invasion creates, uh, that Ukraine will need? That's a concern that we've heard from a lot of lawmakers, and certainly a number of defense contractors have been lobbying up on the Hill saying that they need some federal help in order to keep up with the demand that the war in Ukraine has created. And actually, in this bill, there is a separate pot of money, all, all, all considered, all things considered, it's not, it's not a huge pot of money, but it's a few billion dollars, essentially, to try to help these companies keep up and continue producing the type of ammunition that we're just seeing the Ukrainians just absolutely tear through. Yeah. We're talking about the congressional lame duck session, the status of major spending and defense bills with Katie Edmondson, congressional correspondent for The New York Times, and also with Claudia Grisales, congressional correspondent for NPR. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What are your questions about or reactions to what you're hearing with regard to the defense and spending bills uh, in this lame duck session of Congress? What is your wish list for Congress to achieve before the end of its lame duck session? Next year, Republicans will take over the House. Democrats will maintain control of the Senate. How do you think Republicans will handle a divided Congress? How do you think Democrats will? You can comment by posting on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at KQED Forum. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can call us, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. More after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. Soccer can unite a country, as we've seen from the World Cup. 
But in Iran, women have been barred from even entering the national stadium under penalty of beatings and imprisonment. We'll hear about those who have fought back. Today, we're talking about the congressional lame-duck session with Claudia Grisales, congressional correspondent for NPR, Katie Edmondson, congressional correspondent for The New York Times, and we're hearing from you, our listeners, your questions and comments about this lame-duck session, what you hope Congress will achieve, uh, what you think Republicans will do with a divided Congress, what you think Democrats will, Democratic congressional lawmakers. Email forum at kqed.org. Post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or call 866-733-6786. Let me go to caller William in Belvedere. Hi, William. You're on. Yes, thank you very much. I was very disturbed. I believe I heard it correctly uh, in a different show that uh, President Biden was pushing to have Joe Manchin's bill, which would speed the permitting of uh, fossil fuel development and a new pipeline, that he he was pushing to include that in the budget bill so that uh, it would have more development of fossil fuels. And the idea was that since it was included in a must-pass bill, that it would get through to develop the fossil fuels, whereas if it had been a standalone bill, it would not have gotten through. Could, mm. could the guest comment on that? Yes. William, thanks for that. And uh, Katie Edmondson, let me go to you on that. Of course, Senator Manchin's been trying to get this Amendment to make it easier for energy projects to be approved, as uh, William has said. I think he attempted to get it into the defense spending bill initially, right? That's right. And we may actually see a standalone vote on that amendment, and that would be an up or down vote to attach that measure to the defense bill. Now, assuming that vote happens in the Senate later today or tomorrow, we would expect for it to fail. And the reason is because... Uh, President Biden and Majority Leader Chuck Schumer essentially promised Joe Manchin that they would give him a vote on this measure that's near and dear to his heart, um, partially in exchange for his support for President Biden's marquee bill, Build Back Better. And so uh, your listener may have heard that President Biden's White House uh, put out a statement today reiterating their support for that measure. What I think you're seeing right now is Democratic leadership trying to show Senator Manchin that they are at least trying to make good on their promise. Uh, We expect that that amendment vote, should it happen today or tomorrow on the Senate floor, would fail because there are a large number of Senate Republicans who, even though they might personally support the measure, um, are so peeved that Senator Manchin cut this deal and gave his support to build back better in exchange for this vote. They've signaled they really do not have an appetite to support it. That, of course, does not preclude the idea of trying to jam it into the omnibus spending bill. But again, there's not much support among Senate Republicans for it, and there is not a lot of support in the House among progressive Democrats for the bill, for obvious reasons. And so the math starts looking extremely difficult. Hmm. Well, something that did make into the House pass bill, Claudia Grisales, is a provision around how sexual assaults in the military are prosecuted. Can you tell us about that? Right. This is an initiative that New York Senator 
Kirsten Gillibrand has been working on for about a decade in terms of trying to reform the system, the, the trial system, for example, through the military when it comes to these kind of crimes like sexual assault. The concern is that commanders have been part of the um, part of this trial process and, and these investigations, and they could be involved with little to no experience, legal experience in terms of how to handle these kind of uh, cases. And so the hope was for Gillibrand and others that she's been able to grow support among both sides of the aisle and gain very strong bipartisan support for this plan is to get experienced prosecutors, experienced investigators to be involved in these cases rather than commanders. One issue the military has seen with these sexual assault cases is underreporting. Victims are not coming forward and reporting these cases as much as is su suspected in terms of the number of cases that are occurring. And in part, it's because of fear of this system and fear that there could be a conflict of interest if your own commander is involved in the investigation. Or in some cases, unfortunately, they could be a figure in the sexual assault case itself or sexual harassment, what have you. And yeah. so this is something that Gillibrand got very close to having attached to the defense bill last year. She went to the Senate floor multiple times fighting another Democrat, one of her own colleagues, on the Senate floor. This is Jack Reed. He is the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, trying to get it attached after she gained enough support in the Senate, 10 Republicans at least, to sign on to her measure. That's what she needed to get to the 60 votes threshold. In the end, there were some changes made, but not ultimately a final uh, plan to create this special trial council that would yeah. bring in these investigators to be more fully involved in these kind of cases. And the hope is now it's going to take some time to implement this, but it does have the support to go all the way to President Biden's desk as part of the defense bill. And over time, they hope that this will have an impact not only with reporting of these sort of cases for victims, but also the low numbers of these cases going to trial and eventually seeing convictions. Yeah, a long time coming, this effort showing right. up here in this bill. Katie Emerson, can you talk about the provision that ends the military's COVID vaccine mandate and, and why this was so controversial? Yes, this has been a long-held priority of Republicans in Congress. They were initially unhappy when the White House first unveiled the proposal and have been trying to figure out a way to rescind it ever since. I have to say, in terms of the negotiations for this bill, this was an issue that cropped up at the last minute. Generally, congressional leaders like to keep any sort of controversial measures out of the defense bill to try to keep it as apolitical as possible. But Democrats who are supporting this legislation say that they ultimately didn't have a choice but to include it because Republican leaders, particularly Representative Kevin McCarthy of California, who is currently running to become Speaker of the House next year, said that there would simply not be the Republican votes to pass the bill, that they would withhold their support unless Democrats included that vaccine mandate repeal. And so when it passes the Senate later this week and gets to President Biden's desk, he essentially is going to have to stomach it and sign the bill into law. 
This is something that the Pentagon has staunchly resisted, saying that this is a matter of science and keeping the troops healthy. But it is a political victory for Republicans whose base have been calling out for this for a long time. Yeah, they were saying that it's hard to have a strong military if they are spreading COVID. Um, The other thing that they pointed out is that service members, they've long been required to be vaccinated against a whole bunch of viruses, right, Katie Edmondson? Well, that's right. And we have in our coverage have listed what all of those vaccines are. And I can't even in a concise fashion tell them to you now because it is such a laundry list. And I'll also add that one of the reasons why the Pentagon thought it was particularly important for troops to get vaccinated is that they are often being deployed to countries or areas where the people in those countries do not have great access to vaccines. So the Pentagon made a strong science-based case for keeping the mandate. But you actually have had some Democrats on Capitol Hill who are on the Armed Services Committee say that they actually don't have a problem with rescinding the current mandate, that they think it should be updated. And more privately, I've heard from Democrats that they do have concerns about the impact that that mandate is having on military recruitment. Why do Republicans have so much leverage here with regard to basically Kevin McCarthy saying that he would tank this bill if they did not include this provision? Well, you know, there are thin margins in the House, and every year you have a block of liberal Democrats, the Progressive Caucus, who refuse to support the bill because they generally feel like it allocates far too much money for the Pentagon. And so when you are starting off with a razor thin majority and you know you're going to have a block of Democrats who already are not going to support the bill, regardless of what it says, then you end up having to rely on Republicans. If you are in Democratic leadership, you have to rely on Republicans to help you push the bill over the finish line. And that's why Mr. McCarthy had so much leverage here. Yeah. Katie Edmondson, congressional correspondent for The New York Times. Claudia Grisales, congressional correspondent for NPR. They're talking with us about the defense bill, the spending bill, and what's ahead for the House and Senate in the new year. And I do want to ask about that. We mentioned Kevin McCarthy here, and he is campaigning to be speaker. Um, But it sounds like his path to the speakership is a little more complicated than certainly he would like it to be. Claudia Glisales, can you talk a little bit about what McCarthy is facing? Right. This is going to be a very difficult fight, one of the biggest in his political career. It was thought at one point that they would see a red wave. He would have a vast majority of Republicans. Uh, In the House, that's not going to be the case. There was no red wave. He has a very tight margin in terms of how many Republicans in his own party he can lose. Behind closed doors, he lost 31 of his members when it came time to vote for him, to nominate him to be the speaker next year. But the real fight now comes on the floor on January 3rd. And what he's looking at is uh, several Uh, members, a handful of House Republicans who are saying they're hard nose on McCarthy becoming speaker. Now, can he get to some sort of negotiations with these more conservative Republicans and get them to switch sides? 
that's hard to say, but they're being pretty definitive now that they're not ready to say uh, that they would vote for him. And so he has a very difficult challenge trying to convince all of these Republicans to stay on board, to support him in a floor fight. It could be something that we haven't seen in a long time when it comes to nominating him uh, on the floor. And it, it could take some strategic efforts there for him and his supporters. We have seen a group of moderate Republicans, such as Nancy Mace of South Carolina, make a bigger push for McCarthy in recent days. They say they're they're pushing this slogan for him of uh, only only Kevin or okay. And so this is how they're trying to convince folks that this is the way to go to support him. But this is a real unknown next year is who is going to be speaker. Can McCarthy win this big major political fight on the House floor and convince his party there to stay on board and push him through to have that gavel? Well, Katie, what if he doesn't get 218 votes to start. What what happens then? How does this continue? Well, one of the arguments that Mr. McCarthy's allies have put forward is that lawmakers, should, Republicans should vote for him because there's no real alternative candidate. But what you would see happen is on the House floor, if he is unable to get to 218 votes, as Claudia said, they would have to keep voting. They are going to go ballot after ballot to see who can get to 218 votes. And you have to imagine, with so many ambitious lawmakers in the Republican conference, that if Mr. McCarthy is unable on a series of ballots to get to 218 votes, that you might start to see some Republicans who initially did not want to come forward and put themselves out as a candidate, they might start throwing their hat in the ring. And that is one of the possibilities that we've heard whispers about. Certainly no one wants to do so now, but some of the names that are circulated the most in terms of Republicans speculating who might step forward would be Mr. McCarthy's deputy, Steve Scalise of Louisiana, who's the number two House Republican. And you also have some conservatives, hard, hard right lawmakers in the conference who would love to see a speaker, Jim Jordan of Ohio. Hmm. I was struck, and I think this was in your reporting, Katie, that there are some moderate Republicans who suggested a long shot idea that if people won't support Kevin, that they'll work with Democrats to get the votes for uh, a speaker that Democrats and moderate Republicans could agree with, um, could agree on. What do you think is the likelihood of that? That's right. I mean, if it comes down to ballot after ballot after ballot and no viable candidate throwing their hat in the ring, you, you can't count that out. But I think it's more likely that that is an argument that is currently being used by McCarthy allies to try to bring the far right flank of the conference to heel, to issue a threat of their own, essentially, to say to the you know f five or so hard right Republicans who have said they are never Kevin, to say, look, in, in a razor thin majority, you're not the only ones with influence. So I think it's certainly being used mostly as a threat right now, but whether or not it comes to fruition, I think remains to be seen. Well, it sounds like with the razor thin, with the fact that uh, McCarthy needs the support of his far right flank, basically, in Congress, that it's inspiring a lot more rhetoric um, and signaling a lot more of a hard line that Republicans plan to take in the House next year. I mean, one of the things that 
we've heard him talk about, among other things, is the fact that uh, he is more than willing to use the debt ceiling issue that will come up uh, early next year to try to get some significant concessions from Democrats. Could you first just give us some context as to why, Katie, the debt ceiling will not be addressed in this lame duck session, even though it is something so critical to the U.S. and the global economy, um, but that they're willing to punt it to a divided Congress. Well, I think that is a source of angst for a lot of people, certainly in the business community and for Democrats. I mean, we've just talked about the slate of bills that Congress is working to pass. It's almost the end of December. I think it was seen as a fight that congressional leaders just felt they would not be able to accomplish by the end of the year. And so they're going to punt on it. And it is going to be a real problem when House Republicans take the majority because, again, a lot of these same lawmakers that we've been talking about, the hard right flank that Mr. McCarthy is working to win over right now, are staunchly against raising the debt ceiling. And Congressman McCarthy knows that. And he also knows that in order to get to 218 votes to secure the Speaker's gavel, which is really going to be the first item on his agenda in the new Congress, there are certain things he just has to say. And a refusal to go along with raising the debt ceiling is one of them. Hmm. So then, Claudia, what could we see next year? Could we see the brinkmanship of 2011 when Republicans did this too, and then the U.S.'s credit was downgraded and, you know, the national and the global economy was totally rattled? Yeah, there are a lot of worries that we could see a scenario like that play out again. There are some reasonable minds here that believe that they could reach some level of consensus. But again, this is an era, as Katie was mentioning, of, of divided government. It is going to be tricky in terms of not being able to sort this out uh, before this session ends and having to have this before the next Congress next year and with this crucial deadline, even with Democrats in charge of both chambers. Uh, in, in recent years, uh, we saw a game of chicken, if you will, between Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell when it came to the last test of this debt ceiling deadline. And so now with divided government and House Republicans poised to try and fight um, any kind of smooth path to addressing that, we are really unclear in terms of, of where that may end up by by the, the time that deadline comes out, perhaps as early as next summer. We're talking about the congressional lame duck session with Claudia Grisales of NPR and Katie Edmondson of The New York Times. And about what's ahead for us with divided government. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The 117th Congress concludes on January 3rd, and for lawmakers, the race is on to broker deals and bills to President Biden's desk. And we're talking about all of it with Katie Edmondson of The New York Times, a congressional correspondent there, and Claudia Grisales, congressional correspondent for NPR. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation at 866-733-6786, posting your questions or thoughts on email, forum at kqed.org, and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at KQED Forum. Baroth in San Francisco, thanks so much for joining us. You're on. What would you like to ask? Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm actually uh, calling about a wish list that I have. Uh, this is regarding an immigration bill, uh, H.R. 3648, also known as the Eagle Act, the um, also called as the Equal Access to Green Cards for Legal Employment uh, Act of 2022, Uh, This was actually on the floor a couple of times this week, but for whatever reason, uh, they are not taking a vote on it. But uh, just to to give you a background on this, um, you know, legal legal employment as it stands today, uh, there there is a 7% country cap on on all the legal uh, applicants that come in for green cards uh, in a given year. So what that means is uh, for most backlog countries like India or China, there could be a decade uh, longer wait wait time for for an applicant uh, to get a green card as opposed to any other country, uh, any other applicant from another country. They could just come in and get a green card right away because of that 7% country cap. So what Eagle Act does is it it removes that that cap and it allows for a level playing field for all, uh, you know, all all candidates uh, applying for a green card through legal immigration and legal employment. Uh, and lastly, I just want to mention that, you know, there hasn't been a, uh, you know, a reform for legal immigration for the last 30 years. And, and, and one, one, one variation or the other of, of some sort of a bill has been coming in and going for the last 15 years and, and nothing has been done about it. So, yes. uh, so yeah, I just wanted to uh, call in about yeah. that. Yeah. Barah, thank you for bringing up the Eagle Act. I mean, Katie Edmondson, the Democratic House members just keep pulling this, right? They just can't get the votes? He's right. I believe there's been a vote scheduled almost every single day this week, and it gets pulled every single time. And that's for a couple of reasons. The first being that, as we have seen demonstrated for years now, Republicans in Congress, or at least the vast majority of Republicans in Congress, are just absolutely loath to approve any sort of reforms to immigration law. I also understand that there are some tensions within the Democratic caucus as well, concerns about um, equity issues in terms of ensuring that smaller countries, particularly smaller African countries, um, have a clear and equal path to making sure that their citizens get visas. But this is absolutely something that a lot of Democrats are extremely frustrated over. We've heard certainly from immigration activists that this is something that they would like to see get done before the end of the year, before divided government takes over. But but even if somehow there's a, a path to pass this in the House, it would still be an uphill climb in the Senate, unfortunately. 
Yeah. Well, Claudia, my understanding was Senator Kirsten Sinema was working on a bipartisan compromise on immigration policy. I don't know how much the provisions of the Eagle Act were part of those discussions, but I know that trying to create a path to permanent legal status for DREAMers was one of those things that they were discussing. Is that all dead now? Uh, um, our understanding is that this effort, uh, even though it had this bipartisan support um, being led by cinema, for example, um, it, it just doesn't have the support of leadership to get into legislation. There's just not overall support in the majority of, of both chambers to push this all the way through. Immigration is just one of those issues that members have tried to visit again and again and have not been able to push through. And as Katie was mentioning on the Eagle Act as well, there was just a lot of disappointment there by the bill sponsors, though Lofgren, it was up for a vote yesterday and suddenly pulled from the vote series. And it uh, doesn't look like it's coming back anytime soon. It, and same with immigration. It just doesn't have enough support uh, right now to push something like that through this year. Yeah, if anything, Katie Edmondson, we're, we're hearing about this sort of streak of retribution or this desire to even impeach potentially Alejandro Mayorkas, uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, around his approach to immigration. How likely is that to happen? Well, I think, Mina, you've hit on what is going to be one of the central tensions of the new House Republican majority is how far do Republicans go in their investigations of the Biden administration? And does it culminate in the impeachment of one or more cabinet officials? You've heard from the hard right flank of the party that certainly they believe that Mayorkas should be impeached. And we've heard lawmakers say that they want to go further, that they want to impeach President Biden himself, that they'd like to impeach Attorney General Merrick Garland. And so should Leader McCarthy become the speaker or really whoever becomes speaker, they're going to have to balance the calls from the base of their party, the hard right lawmakers in the conference who desperately want to enact as much retribution as they can on Biden administration officials, whether it is warranted or not. And the more moderate wing of the party who has made the argument, look, we just suffered some pretty bad election losses because the electorate, because voters, you know, really were rather frightened by some of our more extreme candidates, by some of our more extreme policies. Let's focus on what we what voters brought us here to do, which is tackle inflation. But it is going to be a real push and pull. And frankly, the loudest voices in the party right now, the momentum among the grassroots is to try to enact as much vengeance as possible on the Biden administration. And so we will see, but there is a lot of momentum going in that direction. And with so many Republican members, senators, representatives retiring and so on, with the people who were elected, it's true, right, that what we are likely to see is a, is a Republican Congress that is less moderate, more extreme. Well, we are seeing, yeah, we're seeing a lot of retirements in the Senate and in the House from moderate Republicans who have just, you know, they're tired of the fighting in Congress. A lot of these lawmakers are people who have worked across the aisle to 
uh, cut the deals that help government run. I'm thinking, for example, of Senator Richard Shelby of Alabama, who is helping to get this spending bill across the finish line as we speak to keep government open. He will be retiring. And while there are still some more sort of centrist Republicans who were elected in November, we saw primary voters in the Republican Party again and again reward the most extreme candidates. Yeah. Um, on the Democrat side, with Kirsten Sinema, Claudia Grisales announcing that she's leaving the Democratic Party to become an independent, is that going to have a big ripple effect um, among congressional Democrats? Or are you pretty much agreeing with the assessment that it, it really won't mean that much? <laughs> You know, I think we need to see how it plays out. I mean, for now, it's pretty interesting seeing uh, the the Biden White House take the stance and other Democrats take the stance that this doesn't change anything, um, that she will, cinema will remain uh, with her uh, assignments to various committees as uh, she was initially assigned as a Democrat. And so she would be treated the same as other independents in the chamber, um, such as Bernie Sanders. Uh, Vermont and Angus King um, as uh, independents who, in their cases, at least they caucus with Democrats. But to be fair, cinema has not been caucusing with Democrats even before this this change where she moved to the independent um, into the independent uh slot, if you will. And so it's possible that it will not change a lot. It will just um, let her kind of move forward in terms of her political plans, whether that involves re-election. That remains to be seen if she will pursue yeah. that, whether Democrats will support her if she does. That also remains to be seen. Uh, but it is possible that she will, uh, full, she will basically be part of um, the party in terms of uh, committee assignments and what have you, and and maybe not impact has have as much of an impact as some might have initially um, said that it may. Well, this is rights. I'd like to see the next Congress do something about regulating Twitter, Facebook, and other forms of social media that are contributing to the hateful, chaotic political environment in a very unconstructive way in our country. The town square should be regulated. We already regulate radio and television, broadcasting. Why not social media when it can be so dangerous as it has demonstrated lately? You, our listeners, are telling us your wish list for Congress to achieve before the end of its lame duck session, which is fast approaching, and we're getting analysis from Claudia Grisales of NPR and Katie Edmondson of the New York Times. And let me bring Donnie into the conversation. Hi, Donnie. You're on. Hi, Nina. Thanks for taking my call. I'm so, I'm so glad to be part of the conversation. Thanks for having the show. Um, I believe the first order of business, the most important thing, is to bring David Cecilines, um, of the Rhode Island House of Representatives that put forth the legislation that should disqualify Trump from running based on Section 3 of Article 4 of our uh, – Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Our, our, both parties have a responsibility to disqualify Trump based on what we learned on the January 6th hearings. And, and, and when Kevin McCarthy takes over the Republican, National, uh, the, the Republican House – Sorry, I'll try to slow down. There's a lot of information here, but 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 it's it's about Trump. We've got to we've got to disqualify him. They're going to try to come after Biden and try to you know uh, 
launched these ridiculous impeachments of, of Biden. Nancy Pelosi led House, tried to impeach Trump twice legitimately, and the Republicans got in the way just because they were they were on his side to just block it for, for, and, and bury the evidence. The, the FBI Mar-a-Lago raids, the four pending investigations against uh, Trump, the criminal investigations, the two impeachments that, that Nancy Pelosi led as the as the leader of the House that were blocked by by by, by the by the RNC. That's why we, we need to we need to bring this guy, mm-hmm. uh, David Cicilline in Rhode Island, has already written a bill calling on us to disqualify Trump from running based on the information that came out on January 6th hearings, based on Section 3 of our own Constitution, that everybody on both sides, both political party leaderships have a responsibility that they took an oath to protect that Constitution. And in that Constitution is Section 3, 14th Amendment, which, which says quite clearly no person shall hold any office, civil or military, under the United States who has previously taken oath to support the Constitution of the United States, has, yeah. shown, has engaged in insurrection, etc. The January 6th committee hearings proved beyond a reasonable doubt that Trump had given aid and comfort to those, 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 those weapon-carrying violent mobsters that, that attacked our Capitol that day. He stood yeah. down and Don, watched television and didn't do anything to protect. So you hear me, right? This is I do. I, I hear what you're saying. I hear how much this matters to you, too, and I appreciate you calling in. I mean, at this point, it feels like the strongest response so far, besides the fact that January, the January 6th committee has held these hearings, Claudia Grisales, is, is this effort with the electoral count reform act i mean what's the likelihood that it would go much further than that for the kind of justice that donnie would like to see yeah you know there are some i think that would argue that trump is disqualifying himself right now we saw in the midterms uh a clear rejection again and again of this kind of extremist stance that he has brought about these kind of ideas the um, election denial denialism, if you will. And so um, there is a lot of frustration, I think, among a lot of Republicans in terms of Trump's role with the party. Uh, they're not quite ready to walk away from Trumpism. Um, but Trump himself, I think there's a big question mark in terms of how the GOP will move forward with him. And meanwhile, he's facing uh, growing legal peril in terms mm-hmm. of ongoing investigations with the Justice Department and their special counsel taking over the probe. Jan 6, we'll see on Monday what they lay out when it comes to the former president and his role with the January 6th attack. And meanwhile, there's other probes going on in terms of these uh, sensitive documents from Mar-a-Lago that were recovered Uh, from there. And so in terms of his disqualification, I understand members have have tried to push through various initiatives um, when it comes to Trump and and how to deal with him in the future. But it may be Republicans in the end who deal with with, with their Republican plan on what to do with Trump. And, And it seems many are unhappy with his role in terms of the party going forward. Claudia Grisales, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Art writes, the Electoral Count Reform Act is the absolute minimum Congress should do to protect voting rights in this country. Is there any problem standing in the way of enactment of ECRA? Katie Edmondson, any major problems? Because it has bipartisan support in the Senate and a group of Republican and Democratic senators uh, really have pushed to get this across the finish line again before divided government takes over, we expect that it should pass even looking at the very thin majority that House Democrats have, 
um, that is something that we expect pretty much every single House Democrat would support. So it should be on a glide path, but this being Congress, you never know what could gum it up at the last minute. Yeah. You know, we've been saying divided government a lot. Can we basically just expect that not a lot is going to get done in Congress in the next two years? Katie? Well, I'm not an optimist by nature, so I would have to say I'm I'm not <laughs> expecting the scale of legislation like we saw this past Congress get passed. The House, House, I think, is going to struggle to do just the basic governing, the things we've been talking about, raising the debt limit, passing bills to ensure the government does not go into shutdown. And in fact, as we said earlier, the energy in the House Republican conference is with people who lawmakers whose whole MO for being in Congress is actually to try to shrink or upend the federal government as much as possible. Now, it is entirely possible that on you know a, a few bipartisan issues, there may be small reforms that are able to get done. And I certainly hope that's the case. But I am not heading into this Congress expecting there's going to be any sort of transformative bipartisan legislation anytime soon. Sadly, if anything, Claudia, what we're facing, it sounds like, is economic brinkmanship, potentially with catastrophic consequences, retribution by Republicans. What's the bright side? Well, this is going to give Democrats a moment here in terms of making their case to the American public in terms of um, getting the party back in power in the House. So that's the bright side, at least for Democrats. For Republicans, they're going to have another shot at this in terms of making their case to American voters. They've got to figure out who they're going to nominate to become president through this process. And so for them, they think this is their bright side in terms of making their case that voters should return to the GOP in terms of if they want to save um they want to save spending on government and what have you, these various initiatives. But whether they can get it together, stay on the same page of the House and make that case at the end, that all remains to be seen. Yeah. Tell me really quickly, Claudia, one or two members of Congress that you are really keeping your eye on uh, as the next one comes in. Yeah, I, I'm really curious to see what happens with Kevin McCarthy. This is going to be such a huge political fight come January 3rd. It will really set the tone on where House Republicans go next year and, and what steps they take. And then I'm also interested in seeing when it comes to Democrat, uh, they're going to have a new leadership in the House come next year uh, with a new generation step in and Hakeem Jeffries to be um, the first African-American man to lead a party in Congress, a very historical moment. So it'll be interesting to see how Jeffries leads House Democrats and this this new era of leadership goes for Democrats there as well. Claudia Gonzalez, Congressional Correspondent for NPR, thank you. Thank you much. Katie Edmondson, Congressional Correspondent for The New York Times, thank you so much as well for your insights. Thanks, Mina. And thank you, listeners, for sharing what you hope to see. We are so glad to hear from you always. My thanks as well to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.